Hey everyone, I'm Mark Icero, and welcome to Article Club, where every month we do a deep dive on one outstanding article and chat about it. This month we've been discussing Getting an A by Paul Tuff from his new book, The Years That Matter Most, How College Makes or Breaks Us. It's a wonderful chapter, and article clubbers have had a ton of questions about it. And in this episode, I'm happy to say that Mr. Tuff was kind and generous to answer them. Here's a conversation that we had last Tuesday, and I hope you enjoy it. Um, I think my first question is, why'd you say yes to Article Club in the first place? (laughs) Uh, Well, I... You know, so as an author, I have lots, especially an author who's just finished a book tour, I have lots of different interactions with um, readers. And that's always really, I mean, it's nice to have interactions with readers when you're a writer, because I spend a lot of time, especially on this book, sitting alone in a room, uh, talking to myself and typing to myself. So it's nice to hear how what I wrote affects other people. And I think this is an interesting new uh, version of that. Like there are, um, you know, I'll meet people at a reading or, uh, or at a talk, or I'll get an email from a reader and those are all great. But this is, this is got a, this has a level of community to it that I think is often missing in those other interactions. And so I kind of like the fact that I'm not central (laughs) to this process, um, that it would exist without me. I'm glad that I'm able to take part, but I like that it would be happening without me. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that I, I was uh, pleased to be asked and happy to take part. Well, we're super excited. And again, thank you. Um, I can't wait to chat with you about this chapter. Also, we have some questions from uh, article clubbers, but I do want to ask a couple context questions first. Um, The first one is obviously why education? Like, why do you write about education? Yeah, I mean, a little bit by accident. I, I, you know, I'm certainly considered to be an education writer, but I don't always think of myself that way. I feel like... um, when I started writing about education, it was because I was writing about Jeffrey Canada and the Harlem Children's Zone for my first book, Whatever It Takes. Uh, And that started with a magazine article that came out in 2004 in the New York Times Magazine. I met Jeff back in the summer of 2003. I was an editor at the Times Magazine and uh, an occasional magazine writer and was looking around for interesting stories, heard about the Harlem Children's Zone, thought it sounded cool, and, um, and then spent a year following him and which then turned into like five years following him and that that process of being in the Harlem children's zone and trying to understand what they were doing and understanding the context of what they were doing really created for me or or spurred for me all the questions that I've been trying to answer ever since Um, you know that was the first place that I heard about charter schools and then I wanted to understand what they were and if they made sense and how they made sense if they did. And that pushed me toward, you know, trying to understand early childhood, trying to understand the impact of family and environments and neighborhoods and schools. And all of that felt like it led me to higher education in this last book as, as a place where so many of the inequities in K-12 education are not, um, not sort of mitigated as I think a lot of us had hoped, but are actually in many ways made worse. Yeah, like in that book, which, by the way, entirely rocked my world as an educator, you were starting at kids who are really young. And yeah, it was about education, but it was about everything. It was about all the things that were needed. And then now you're talking about college and specifically, I guess, young people who are, what, 18 to 25 and, and what happens to them? 
Yeah, and, and I mean, so when I describe the book, the, my quick phrase is to say it's about the intersections of higher education and social mobility. Um, and in lots of ways, I feel like the motivating theme of the book is social mobility. And that is, to me, it's just always been this fascinating idea, especially when it's happening to people that age. It's there's just this, you know, I mean, it's like, it's the theme of every coming of age novel of so many memoirs, this idea of like when you are as a, as a person in your late teens and early twenties, renegotiating your relationship with where you came from, with uh, your ambitions, with your family, with what you want to be. Uh, and I think it is just this sort of historical fact, this kind of coincidence of this moment that so much of that happens to be taking place through the lens of, uh, of college. Uh, that's the place now where so many young people are experiencing this. There's a lot of people who don't believe in college anymore, whether it's too expensive or as you say in your book. I mean, your book, I read the book, it's great. And, and yet it's not a very happy book overall. And um, even educators, even my colleagues, some of us are questioning college, but it seems like you still believe in it as long as it works. Is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I, I mean, I believe in it in two levels. You know, I, I believe in it in terms of the data. It, it is a, this very effective way for young people from low-income, first-generation backgrounds to change their trajectory in life. Like, it really does work if you're if you're a, a low-income young person and you get into a, a, a selective institution and you're able to figure out how to survive there and how to uh, excel there. You are much, much more likely to have a, a comfortable and ambitious life. Um, but I also believe in it because, you know, I like books, <laughs> I like <laughs> reading and I like knowledge, um, and I like intellectual discussions. And, you know, I think there are lots of ways that, um, college is not always about that. And it's about a lot of other things, but it's like at its best, it's this really amazing time in a young person's life. Um, and I think the fact that we have, um, sort of cluttered that very potentially positive experience with all of this economic stress is uh, is a real shame, I think, and, and it really um, denies a lot of young people the opportunity to have that kind of important uh, developmental experience. That's why I was so excited about choosing um, getting an A as a chapter to sort of share with the article club. It, it just seems like it's so heartwarming and positive. And so far, everybody in the club is I mean, people are crying, people are saying, you know, go Yvonne and all that kind of stuff. But what I wanted to ask is that the previous part of the book is all about the challenges of college. And then you have this almost triumphant uh, chapter at the end. And I just wanted to ask you, why did you include it? And then also, why did you put it in the part of the book where you did? Yeah, I mean, I, so I agree it's more optimistic than the rest of the book. I don't feel like it's entirely triumphant though I understand what you're saying yeah I mean it, like I feel like by that point in the book you, you you've, you're pretty bummed out yeah there's a lot, there's been a lot of bad news about about how uh, social mobility works in this country um, and so he hearing the story of one young woman for whom it works uh, pretty effectively I think is it made me feel a lot better for sure um, why I put it where I put it in the book is you know, like I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to organize this book. There was no clear, obvious um, organizing structure. I kind of organized it based on, you know, starting at the um, 
process of applying to college and getting into college and then being in college and trying to succeed and graduate from college. So in that way, it made sense towards the back of the book to have something that was actually the experience of sitting in a classroom uh, with a student. Um, but I think I also wanted wanted to end on something of a positive and hopeful note and to show that there are potential solutions to a lot of the problems that I had uh, spent a lot of time dwelling on earlier in the book. Uh, did you? I mean, it did seem like you were at all the lectures. Like, did you go to all the classes? Not every single one, because I was traveling a little bit that fall as well. But yeah, like 80% of them. Um, and and in that class, in, in Uri Treisman's, uh calculus class, the lectures alone were just a small part of the learning experience. So um, I would go to the sections led by Erica Winterer uh, a couple times a week. And then... Um, I would also go to these really uh, long and kind of intensive weekend sessions where Uri would uh, go over a lot of the week's work and they were a little bit more informal. Not everybody came to every one of them. And so it was a slightly better way to get to know uh, some of the students. And then the, the other part of my reporting, as well as, you know, then interacting individually with students and with uh, Uri and the other teachers and, and sort of getting their perspective on what they were doing. Um, I, I would also sit in on uh, his office hours. So most Saturdays uh, I would go sit in his office and, and we'd sit there for like five hours as he would have one student after another come in. So that, that section where Yvonne is um, having her office hours with Uri, I was sitting there taking notes, uh, <laughs> but did that for you know dozens of other students as well. I mean, I think that that's just hilarious. I mean, obviously uh, Jessica in our club is just so appreciative. And she was saying that it seems like you're in the actual thoughts of, of the characters, especially Yvonne, but it's because you're hanging out for five hours in the office hours. Yeah, that, I mean, that, so the office hours was this great window into certain students' uh, lives. But then it, it also gave me this opportunity. So like there were more than 100 students in the class. I ended up only writing really in, in depth about one, Yvonne. But even when I started writing the chapter, I, I had this overly uh, ambitious idea of what this chapter was going to be and thought I would have five or six different characters whose stories I would sort of weave together. And there were probably, yeah, at least a half dozen characters who I had spent a, a lot of time with uh, as much as I spent with Yvonne. Um, and it was only in the final writing that it became clear that her story was the was the one that I wanted to focus that chapter around. So in some ways, one of the one of the uh, advantages of those uh, office hours is, was that it gave me uh, a way to, to sort of quickly get to know or relatively quickly get to know dozens of different students. And then I from those office hours then followed up uh, with yeah, a dozen of them and got to know them better. That's really interesting because I would assume for the other characters in your book, there was a different process. But here um, you sort of went to, did you go to um, Uriah first and then say, hey, I want to do this. And then he said yes. And then you met all the students. Yeah. So I talked to Uri. I met Uri um, a year before I started, almost a year before I, I did that. The, the, the one semester. So the main semester uh, that I write about is took was the fall of 2017. And in December, I think it was December or November 2016, David Yeager, who is a psychology professor at the University of Texas and someone I wrote about first in the New York Times Magazine in 2014 and then in chapter six, right? Chapter six of my book, um, 
so I'd known him for a few years at that point, and he uh, was a friend of Uri's and had introduced me to Uri and said, uh, you know, I'm going, I, I've started taking uh, Uri's calculus class because I want to be a better teacher. And I feel like watching him is like uh, watching Michael Jordan play basketball. And so you should come. And so I was convinced I came to one class, uh, loved it and got the idea to try to do a, do a chapter that was based on an entire semester. Um, that fall was, was the uh, Uri was was like a few days away from open heart surgery, <laughs> um, wow. so so he I was like, hey, you're gonna teach this in the <laughs> spring? Can I like come in January and watch? And he was like, nope, I'm taking next semester off because I'm about to go to uh, have open heart surgery. So I put it off until the next fall, um, and then started up in August. But I so I had had a number of conversations with him uh, before it started. It seems like the chapter, even though it focuses later on Ivan, it starts with Uri, and there's just so much of him, and we totally love him both as a professor as well as a teacher. And you start with him in the chapter. Like I thought that you may have started with Ivan, but you start with him, and mm -hmm. actually like. It's more about him in some ways than maybe about her, at least the, the amount, like the number of words. And mm -hmm. so can you say a little bit about why that is or is, was that an intentional choice? I'm not sure if it was an intentional choice. I mean, I, I, I spent so much more time reporting with Uri than I did with Yvonne. Um, you know, I had like, I, I would chat with Yvonne a few times during the year. I, I met her pretty early on, but I didn't think of her as a central character until pretty late, until November or so. Um, and then I did like three or four long interviews with her, but I think they were all, maybe the first one was at the end of October. It was, it was pretty late in the process. And so I think part, and, and, but meanwhile, I'd spent, you know, days and days and days talking to Uri uh, and, and all of the sort of biographical information about Uri came on those, um, on those Saturdays where we would sit in his office and do office hours. So in between students or if, you know, a student canceled or if he'd schedule it with a long break, I would just start asking him about his past and he would tell me these long stories <laughs> about growing up. Um, and so, and I just, I mean, I, I really uh, like and admire him as a person, but I also found him to be this fascinating character in this milieu that he grew up in, I felt was just fascinating to me on its surface, but also like gave some clues into what he was doing uh, and how or why his methods were effective and why he cared about them so much. So that uh, that's a long way of answering the question of why I, why I started with him. I think it also just, it felt like it made sense um, chronologically like I I mean I was with him uh, when he was sitting there going through those uh, those names uh, and I wasn't with Yvonne I'd never, I hadn't met her at that moment so it just partly was like a question of uh, having better access to better material um, than than sort of a decision about like well, what structurally makes sense for the piece so you you watch him trying to memorize the names, which, by the way, is is amazing. And that's what teachers do. Um, and then you go into the class and then he does the rituals thing with the music. And then uh, did he meet like were you there for the first one where he meets um, Yvonne or did he meet Yvonne at that time or was that later? I don't remember if he talked. I don't think I describe him talking to her that day. Right. I just no, described, no, you don't. Yeah. Did he talk? He talked with a bunch of students afterward. I don't remember if she was one of them, but no, but I, I later sort of, I did reckon, I did see her and I was sort of describing in my notebook, a bunch of different students. And I did note her um, and noted that she was in, in the front row. But then I later on interviewed her and 
asked her about her experience of being there in the in that first day and so piece together sort of her version of what it was like sitting there uh, based on that interview. That's a great way to describe her that she was in the first row. It seems like she's been in the first row for her entire life. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, she was in the first row every, every study session too. Is that why you, I mean, you said that you had four or five students or um, like, why'd you choose her over the others? Like what was about her story? Well, so again, I didn't start, I didn't, I mean, I, I chose her sort of as one of this, I think like 10 students who I talked with in detail. And why I did that, I would say it was two reasons. One is that in her uh, office hours, she said a few things about her background that made her seem really interesting. She was also a pretty um, like friendly, outgoing person. So I just, I had a conversation with her and she would also show up early before class. So there was one class pretty early on where we were, and I, also, I would always get there early to talk to students beforehand. Um, so we had an, an early chat uh, that way and I first got to know her, um, but didn't understand that she was as good a character as, as she turned out to be at that point. Um, but then why I decided to make her the central character when, you know, when I had a bunch of characters who I thought were, were kind of uh, equally interesting, I felt like she, I mean, I guess two reasons. One is she's, uh, one way I find that I always choose characters is just how good they are at telling their own story. Um, and, you know, that means you miss some good stories uh, by people who aren't as good uh, at narrating their own lives, but it's just really useful when you're trying to get deep into someone's uh, story to have them be able to access their feelings and describe them and uh, recount uh, moments in their lives. And she was really, really good at it. She's an emotional person, um, but also just this, this very kind of like, she's got a great memory and she was able to re reconstruct uh, and, and, and reflect on a lot of the moments in her life and in that semester. Um, and I think she also, more so than some other students, she just embodied the, the challenges and the potential of what's going on in that calculus class because she struggled at the beginning and succeeded at the end. And there were some students who struggled at the beginning and struggled at the end. <laughs> and there were some students who succeeded in the beginning uh, and continued to succeed. And so the fact that she sort of went through that important narrative arc uh, made her a really uh, appealing figure as well. Yeah, I mean, she definitely was not succeeding at the beginning. And even though she got into that study group, you know, it's like she's in that study group, she's got Marcos, but it just didn't work out for her. Like, she was doing all the things. I'm sure she was studying a lot, um, but she really, really struggled. Um, yeah. But, and so she would tell you about that. She would say like, oh, I'm studying, but it's just not, it's just not working out for me. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so then, you know, I guess in late October, we started talking in more depth and she would describe uh, that experience to me. And that, that was like, uh, I mean, she mentioned this thing about upward bound saying, make sure you get, you're not the smartest one in your study group, right? She said that to me a few times and I was just like, oh, that's an interesting strategy. And I, you know, having done the the K-12 reporting that I had done with, with, you know, ambitious high school students, it was exactly the kind of thing I could hear um, someone saying to a kid like Yvonne. Uh, but then it took me a while to understand that it had gotten her in this situation that uh, where she was surrounded by students who actually made her feel really intimidated and bad about herself, uh, nice and, and generous though those students were, it just created this this scenario for her where she felt like the dumbest person in her study group. And that was this real threat to her identity. And so I, you know, at that, by that point, I'd been spending a lot of time both with Uri and with David Yeager and with others talking about the psychology of uh, a college student and a first, especially a first generation college student. And so understanding 
why um, that that in some ways good advice she got from Upward Bound had created this kind of psychological trap for her uh, and that it took a while for her or Uri or Erica or anyone else to understand how that was actually not what she needed. Um, that felt like like kind of a cool story in terms of her own her own growth, but also an interesting story in terms of uh, the, the bigger questions of how, how you help uh, a student like her succeed. While we were reading it, we definitely noticed that she's hit with this loss of confidence. Um, I'm assuming that she felt somewhat confident, I guess, in high school, but then, you know, she was struck with college and, and that's a whole different thing. And, and certainly her sister and mom sometimes don't even help out, you know, just because they're trying to comfort her. But, but like uh, one big question that we're having, especially the educators in the club is like, we know what Uri is doing, but why do you feel like he made it, he made it really hard and yeah, doing the mm -hmm. proofs and all that stuff. And I, we understand like, you know, you don't want to over scaffold, which is an educator term. Right. And, mm -hmm. and you, and you don't want to like, comp you don't want to like say a false um, truth uh, mm -hmm. uh, to a student, but, we, we've been debating, like, is Uri like too hard? Like later on, he's like, oh, maybe I'm being too hard on you, Yvonne. Mm -hmm. So did you notice that happening? Um, did you make sense of like what his overall strategy was? I did. And, you know, so I'm a, I was a little uh, held back by the fact that, well, one, I'm not an educator, but B, I'm not a mathematician. And so he would describe to me, like, I don't understand calculus. Um, and so he would describe to me how he was choosing questions, and this went back to his work at Berkeley, uh, that were intricately, carefully constructed to be the right kind of challenge. Um, and I had to take his word for it, since I didn't understand the math that these questions were were accomplishing that. And I do, so I, I mean, he does have a, a, a real theory, which makes sense to me, that uh, especially for students, uh, in this, you know, potential in in this environment that has a great potential for stereotype threat of being a, a low income, underrepresented minority student at a highly selective institution, whether it's UT or you know, I'd also spent time in the book at Princeton and other uh, really rigorous places. That there is this real risk that students feel like they are um, in the you know the, the easy class, right, and that 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 a lot of the stereotype threat research suggests that that is really undermining for those students, right? So I think it makes sense that Uri would go the opposite way. His other theory that I think I talked about a little bit in the chapter is that if you start at the beginning of the class with this deep sort of theoretical uh, material that a lot of calculus teachers don't get into, it um, shakes up everybody. So even like the Marcos uh, level students in the class get confused because in AP calculus, you don't study uh, some of the roots of calculus that he was getting into. And that, he, his theory is, and I think it makes sense, that that confusion makes, uh, it sort of equalizes people and creates this sense of community and cooperation in the class that was really important for him to create. Um, so I think that makes sense. I mean, and, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I feel like his goal for a student like Yvonne is not to have them like scrape by and, and barely pass calculus. You know, his goal is to make them mathematicians. And, you know, Yvonne is now a junior at UT and she's still a math major and still, you know, has taken lots more advanced math classes and, and thrived in them. And so, you know, part of his, his philosophy is if you just get a student who really wants to be, you know, a mathematician, an engineer, a doctor, and get them to sort of barely pass an easy version of calculus, you are setting them up for more struggles ahead. 
this is amazing, like about what's possible in, in education. Um, but it, it, it does get, you know, it did get us thinking about like why exactly this works. And there's obviously a lot of the system, uh, the systems piece and his workshop approach, but also, you know, when you're reading it, he's putting in Saturdays and Erica Winterer um, is putting in Sundays and Yvonne's going to all of these things. And so, um, you know, we did have this question about what part of this is systems and techniques. And then what mm -hmm. part of this is just like, you know, pure determination. I don't, I don't want to use the word grit, you know, but, mm -hmm. you know, but what, did you get a sense about which part was what? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think it's both. And I think, you know, this, for me, this goes back to, to, you know, reporting, uh, like on the Harlem Children's Zone and the amount of effort that they uh, put into their schools and their early childhood program and the amount of money that they spent. It, it, there is this way, or, you know, when I wrote about Educare uh, in helping children succeed, this really expensive but excellent uh, early childhood pre-K program for high poverty kids that has great effects but costs like $20,000 a year, right? So when you write about these sorts of programs, um, the the uh, response, I think, from some quarters is, well, that's like, that's not scalable, right? It's impossible to do that. But I, th I think it's really important to show um, what you can accomplish, right, with with uh, with extra resources and extra work, and so to my mind, URI is sort of the equivalent of Educare. Um, I don't, I'm, you know, I don't think every math professor is going to do this, but I think it's really useful if you're a calculus professor um, and you're losing a lot of your low-income first-generation students, as most calculus professors and most freshman calculus classes all over the country are doing, to understand what's possible. Um, and you know, you, your response might be, well, I can't afford that or can't do that or don't have the time to do that, or I'm not paid enough to do that. <laughs> uh, and, and I, I'm not arguing against that, but I do think it's important to, um, create counterexamples like Uri's class, uh, to disprove the idea that a student like Yvonne just can't succeed in a class like Uri's. Um, and that, you know, so that, and that's part of the point that I was trying to make at the end of the chapter uh, when I write about the op-ed by um, Mitch Daniels, right? That here's Uri, who has a 22 on the ACT. Every, so much of how our higher education system is structured is premised on the idea that a student with a 22 on the ACT cannot succeed in uh, a high level calculus class at a rigorous research one institution. And so we should not put those students in those classes, we should, we should steer them away, whether through admissions or counseling or something else, uh, and have them have a different path through life. And um, that, I think, is this really insidious message, not only for individual students, but for the country as a whole. Uh, and so I, that's where I feel like a counterexample like Yvonne's is really important. Uh, it just seems like that is exactly what you were going for. And I think that um, one thing that I was thinking about, because I've read your other books, and I know that you've focused on um, issues of equity and, and education reform, is that I felt like that was a little bit different from some of your earlier stuff around like character and grit and all these programs around psychology. It seems like you're saying, hey, folks, hey, teachers, actually really teach like crazy the thing that you're teaching. Um, mm -hmm. Is that a fair representation? Uh, I don't see the two things. I mean, I, I, I think you're right. That is the message of that chapter. I don't see that as in opposition to um, what I've written about, you know, non-cognitive skills and character strengths and grit. 
Um, I mean, to my mind, like the two, and, and I, I'm not sure that I always express this well in what I, when I've written about it, but I don't see the, the you know, the, the kind of cognitive training, which calculus teaching certainly is, and the non-cognitive uh, uh, supports that I think great teachers do, whether it's in pre-K or, uh, or freshman calculus or anywhere in between. I don't feel like those are opposed, right? Like, I don't think we should stop teaching math and, and start teaching grit. I think that helping young people develop the sort of persistence uh, and mindset that Yvonne had is a crucial part of teaching them calculus, right? Like, like the goal of all of those non-cognitive skills for me is to help kids develop the kind of, uh, succeed in the kind of classes that they've always needed to help them be better writers and better thinkers and better arguers and better calculators, right? Um, and so, uh, so to my mind, like Yv Yvonne's story is, is a whole lot about both. You know, what, Uri, like Uri certainly doesn't use the word grit, but that's like, if you look at his office hours with her, he's talking about persistence, right? He's talking about perseverance and how, uh, how it's possible for her to persevere. Um, you know, he talks about stubbornness, right? She says, I guess I'm just stubborn. And, you know, stubborn is just like a culturally different word for gritty. Um, and that was the word that made sense for the two of them. But in another context, grit could be the word that made sense. And what I like about, you know, putting it in that context is that like, they're not saying, okay, so you're stubborn. So that's enough. You're going to do great in life. <laughs> you're stubborn for it, 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 it like the, the point of being stubborn is to pass calculus. Um, because if you pass calculus, you're going to be able to, if you get an A in calculus, you're going to be able to do other things in life that really matter. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know, um, right at the end when she gets the 391 out of 400 and everybody was crying by the way on the, on the article. And, uh, uh -huh. And I love the quote also, I don't know what it is exactly, but she said that she sees calculus. She, she sees the logic of calculus and yeah. it's just such a great way to end the chapter. So, so thank you for that. Um, I wanna thank you for all of your time. I, it, this has just been incredibly valuable. Thank you like just for sharing. Um, I think this is gonna be really great. And I, I, I think that article clubbers are gonna really enjoy it. Good. Well, thanks for choosing the chapter. I appreciate it. And thanks for uh, this cool experiment. I'm glad you're doing it. I'm interested to see where it, where it goes, both this week and then, or this month uh, and then beyond as well. Hey, this is Mark again, and I hope that you enjoyed this interview with Paul Tuff. I just want to share my thanks one more time to Mr. Tuff for participating in Article Club. It, it's pretty great. Um, if you have been listening out there and you want to learn more, you can check out Article Club at articleclub.org. If you're already in Article Club and want to sign up for this Sunday's discussion, either online or in person, please go to highlighter.cc discussion. Thank you again, everybody, for listening, and have a great week.